This is the Magpie House, produced for Sounds, Centre for New Zealand Music, Toi Te Arapuru, by Popsock Media and Sounds. Ko Kirsten Johnstone, aho. Who's off? Have you met Selena? I haven't. She knows we're coming. Yeah, she does. Selena Fisher is composer in residence at the Magpie House, Lilburn's old home at Ascot Street. Hi. Hello, Hello. Selena. Hi. Very cold hand, it's, Selena. It's very cold. <laughs> oh, yeah. but it's nice and warm in here. Yeah. Cool. What makes a house a home? Is it the memories that it holds? The people who have lived, loved, and fought inside its walls? the art and music pulled from its ether? Is it the meals enjoyed at its table, the wine drunk by friends long into the night, the old shower dribbling with poor water pressure, the brick pathway overgrown with weeds, the creaky floorboards in the hall? If you love a home enough to die in it, might something of yourself remain behind? A resonance or an echo, vibrating quietly, barely perceptible to those who enter? And if your home goes on to hold others, all of them pouring themselves into their art in this same space for weeks and months on end, might some of their energy collect as well? What might that sound like? In this episode, we see Douglas Lilburn quitting composing at his peak. And at that point we thought, well, he'll be back. Protecting his legacy. He could, well, sense that he could be important in history. (laughs) Settling into retirement. After about ten minutes, I'm playing away and this wine just slides under the piano. (laughs) And finally passing into the afterlife. And I was looking at his hand and all of a sudden I saw it flutter. This is the Magpie House episode four, The Resonance Chamber. We have the spare bedroom over here, which we have, uh, you know, friends and people come and stay with us. To the main living room, which is where we would have any kind of rehearsals or gatherings, things like that. It's a really beautiful space. Good shelving. Good (laughs) mid-century shelving there. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Lots of storage. On the inside, the house is tastefully mid-century modern. It's open, airy and welcoming. While most of Douglas's collection is gone, the house has an art curator and Douglas McDiarmid's Ocean Bathers still hangs in the living room. In the last ten years, the Magpie House has been re-roofed, had heat pumps put in, new carpet laid and the shower pressure is strong. There's a Japanese koto, a long wooden stringed instrument in the living room where Selena has been improvising with a taonga puro artist. We head to the back of the house where Douglas kept his August 1st upright piano. Yeah, so this is the studio, which is kind of a space just to work in, which is an amazing thing. I hadn't had that before, with a view of the garden, the back garden and lawn. And this is where I do all my 
work. Yeah, actually last year while we were in lockdown, I was teaching at Victoria or at New Zealand School of Music, but all of that was on Zoom, so I did a lot of my teaching in here as well. We'll come back to Selena later, but we're going to go back to where we left Lilburn in episode three, in a bit of a blue introspective patch around 1971. Lil Bernard had been spending long stretches of time at his central Otago cabin, working towards a sense of self-acceptance and perspective. He'd made huge sacrifices for his art, but then that's often how it goes. As Jenny McLeod said to me, You have to make sacrifices, otherwise the muse will deem you unworthy and will discard you. You know, you're no use unless you're available. You could never accuse... Douglas of not being available to the muse. But I don't think he would have called it the muse. Biographer Philip Norman transcribed parts of Lilburn's diary, which were written during his time in Otago. Some of the entries are intensely personal, like this one. I've proved myself unable to share life with another human being, partly driven by egotism of work and ideal, partly by nature selfish and solitary. I no longer seek this illusion. But out in the wider world, Lilburn's achievements continued to accumulate. His pieces were beginning to be recorded and released exponentially. By the 1970s, audiences no longer cringed at hearing new New Zealand-made music, and Lilburn was far from the only composer of note. When Lilburn returned to Wellington in 1972 to start teaching again part-time, he holed up in the electronic music studio. Most of his colleagues hardly ever saw him. Lilburn had been coming to terms with a new synthesizer, the Putney VCS3. By this time, Ross Harris was also on the staff and sharing Lilburn's offices. The character of those machines was that they were voltage-controlled synthesizers. They could do their own thing, and um, you could not guarantee the results. And so these pieces were put together by trial and error, and that's where... Lilburn versus Putney came in 1972. Lilburn versus Putney VCS3 is a 38-minute work which assembled all these experiments. Where he'd collected a whole lot of material which was not up to his compositional needs. It was like, you know, all those kind of electronic-y, voltage-controlled things which are fairly easy to do and turned it into something that was going to be in the stairwell leading up to an end-of-year event. Lilburn played it to music department staff and students on the last day of the academic year in 1972. The reactions were mixed. Some of the students were really just there for the wine and cheese. And as the volume of chatter increased, Lilburn edged up the volume on his piece, which of course made the chatter louder. I think we'd probably say that Putney won that. <laughs> but then just as the people drifted away, and Lilburn's disappointment began to set in. Ross and some others came in and requested a replay. <laughs> Poor Douglas, yes. Obviously, um, he must have had mixed feelings about it all deep inside because he didn't know what he was going to produce in the future, so that may, may have been like, this is what I do, this is what you can do in this medium. There were elements of electronic music making that Lilburn struggled with. And to be honest, electronic music composers and producers of all genres still struggle with today. I'll let Lilburn explain. Electronic composers are still looking for a solution as to how to present their work in concert performance. 
It's not a not very happy business, of course, just to line up an audience in front of some loud speakers and sit them there when they are, in fact, used to looking at personalities performing on the stage. And various composers, particularly at Stockhausen, are looking for ways around this by having performers on the stage and at the same time manipulating their sounds electronically. In the end, Lilburn really mastered those machines, and you can hear it in the piece that came after Lilburn versus Putney, Three Inscapes. That's why I think those pieces of Douglas are, are so special because he's he's got his whole background of serious classical um, instrumental writing, which very few people in the electronic medium at that time had. A lot of them were like converted technicians and stuff, but he had this huge background. And you especially hear in the first one the way he's um, got the sounds twittering and uh, on single notes. There's a lot of repeated notes, as in his instrumental writing at that point. But then he sort of slowly pulls the plug at the end of that movement on one of the controlling frequencies, and the thing just goes from do-do-do-do-do-do, and the guts falls out of it. And it's a fantastic piece of musical composition, actually. So there's, there's the skill, absolutely. you really got to earn these pieces. you got to work hard. That was what he taught us. <laughs> In 1977, Lilburn sold his Otago cabin, writing in his diary that I now want to float down the great river without such ties, cultivate my Ascot jungle, give thanks for that Otago hospice and now trust Providence again. He had, after all, been studying Buddhist texts. One has to accept life in a larger sense. One has to assume responsibilities. One has to give back a good deal of what one's gained. And in my case, I I think I've been very lucky to be able to do this partly through teaching and at the same time keep a relative amount of freedom for my own work. What are the fundamental freedoms which you value? All the freedoms that people in this country enjoy, for one. And in my own case, I think particularly freedom to be able to write the kind of music I would like to write. It's 1979, and the contemporary music scene in Wellington is humming. Many composers are now experimenting with electroacoustic music, and some have mastered it. A box set of New Zealand electronic music is released, which acknowledges Lilburn as the father of the medium in New Zealand. And Lilburn's friend and colleague Jack Boddy is running annual events known as Sonic Circuses. And while Jack is the frontman, Lilburn is bankrolling a lot of it. Lilburn's lobbied hard for years to make sure that composers are paid fairly through his work with APRA and that their work is preserved, setting up an archive with the National Library. He's also quit smoking, but he's noticed that his walking pace up that steep hill to university has slowed. His hearing is deteriorating, arthritis is settling in, and he's been diagnosed with skin cancer. In 1979, aged 64, he tells the Vice-Chancellor that it's time to retire and get his affairs in order. 
As biographer Philip Norman wrote, Lilburn retired at his peak. Lilburn's closest colleague, Ross Harris, doesn't remember there being a retirement party. Yes, I think he just slipped off. Um, and at that point we thought, well, he'll be back. You know, he's just taken a break. He's um, handed over the studio to me and um, we'll see more of him. And um, he never returned at all at any stage. He never entered that building into the studios ever again. He just departed. <laughs> but that was part of his personality, I suppose. And I thought that with what he'd learned through electronic music, if he could have put that together with his instrumental music and started to write instrumental music again, and informed by his electronic experience, it would have been incredibly good. I, I felt there was a kind of another period of Lilburn that never happened, actually, which, which is a bit of a shame. But, yeah, he just toddled off and went back to Ascot Terrace and, and wrote and drank and was probably... Fairly sad, actually. Mm. Did you spend much time with him in those later years? No, no, we, we, we parted company. He didn't like me writing opera. It was like I'd kind of lost the path. Yeah. So I part- and, and I had very little to do with him in the later years. Lilburn was made an emeritus professor, and in January 1980, her collection of writing was published in Lilburn's honour, with contributions from colleagues, students and friends. I said, I find it more natural to play Douglas Lilburn's piano music than to write about playing it. Pianist Margaret Nielsen, who wrote an essay. Its appeal wasn't always so immediate, and my mind goes back to the early 60s when audiences in smaller cities and towns were suspiciously fearful of unfamiliar music. What a risk to express a liking for what was heard in case the ears judged faultily without any direction from some authoritative voice or pen. About a kilometre down the road from Ascot Street is the National Library. It's an imposing, brutalist, greystone building, designed in the mid-70s but not finished until the mid-80s. Lilburn worked with librarians and other staff to make sure that the building would have adequate facilities for preserving sound recordings and that the theatre would be acoustically designed. Underground here, there's two earthquake-resistant floors of art, books, old newspapers and magazines, oral histories, photographs, maps and letters. This includes the Alexander Turnbull Library Collection. That's the stuff that's irreplaceable. This is where Lilburn's collection is. Interesting. This is retired music librarian Jill Palmer. Oh, wow. There's a lot of notes there. A lot of notes. (laughs) Jill worked at the Alexander Turnbull Library between 1979 and 2006. June of that year, he came in with his reel-to-reel tapes of his electronic music and other music. This was about the time Douglas was concerned with the preservation of recordings and felt that the librarians should have hands-on experience with tape. And so he suggested that I go up to the university and have some lessons in what electronic music was. And so I went up to the university and had some private lessons, and it turned out good. I, I thought, oh, this I could get hooked on this. <laughs> but I didn't. But she had, had other, other things, things to, do. to do. She retired 15 years ago, but I can tell she was great at her job. 
She's absolutely prepared to speak to me. She's gone over her old diaries and found names and dates. Everything is precise. Douglas would have been impressed with her as an archivist, I'm sure. Uh, Douglas had a, a very solid sense of history. He knew the value of the materials in Turnbull for historical writing. And he could, well, sense that he could be important in history. <laughs> I think he did. In later life, Lilburn started to filter personal things into the Turnbull Library, a collection of letters from his old teacher, Rafe Vaughan Williams, and other people he corresponded with frequently. And I thought it was such an honour to be handling these letters. Yeah. And then ten days later he came in and said, I've got something else for you. And it was a large wax box, a gold mine of letters from Charles Brash, Nio Marsh, Dennis Glover and other in the arts. So he was giving it bit at a time, maybe his head, you know, pulled them out of his drawers, cabinets and at his home. Many of these people died around this time. Glover in 1980, Niall Marsh in 1982, Charles Brash back in 73. It seems like he was really intent on leaving a tidy desk. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, yes, but I think he, um, at the end, there was a lot of stuff in the house. (laughs) Do you think he was a hoarder? No, I don't think he was a hoarder. I think you really call him a collector. He kept things because they were significant. But we did find a a shopping list, and I think that's in his collection somewhere. (laughs) Jill's brought me to the Lilburn room to look at some of her favourite files from the collection. There's a beautiful hand-coloured photo of Douglas as a smiling toddler, the programme for the 1940 premiere of the Aotearoa Overture, some impeccably written manuscripts of pieces that Jill loves. Oh, what a magnificent letter. It's one of the most exciting letters I've ever found in, mm. in my job. Yeah. Yeah. The letter she's talking about was written by Lilburn to New Zealand pianist Peter Cooper. In 1946, Lilburn wrote a piece called Chacon, but it wasn't played. The pianists here at the time said it was too hard. Then in 1954, Cooper recorded it in London for Radio Free Europe, and the NZBS gave a copy to Lilburn. Lilburn writes, Peter, my dear Peter, you've just given me one of the best and most exciting half hours of my musical life. It was exactly right, all of it. It was grand for me to hear all the brilliant bits bought off in that way, and those I certainly was hearing for the first time. And they made the right wash of sound, or glittered as I'd hoped they might. And the octaves in their rhythm had just the jagged, vivid sound I'd hoped for. I'm convinced that it is some of the best music I have ever written. And also that it is some of the truest music I've ever written. I think that's... In 1984, Douglas was appointed as an honorary curator. And he also set up the Lilburn Trust, which benefited from Lilburn's financial nous. One day I asked Douglas, I said, where did all the money come from, Douglas? And he just had this grin on his face. He said, Briarly shares. Oh, he didn't get caught in the 1986 crash then? Well, it was was in before the 1986 crash, okay. But Douglas had a good uh, share broker and he pulled them out. 
before the crash mm. and put them into the Lilburn Trust. Yeah, yeah. We meant the 1987 stock market crash. Since then, the Lilburn Trust has supported many composers, performers and researchers. Just next to the Lilburn Room is a small room with two pianos in it. One of them is Lilburn's Upright. It was an August Forster piano, which he'd bought in Christchurch when he lived down there, and it was love at first hearing when he played it. This is Dan Poynton playing that same piano. Dan released four volumes of Lilburn's piano music in the early 2000s. He spent a lot of time poring over manuscripts here in the Turnbull, finding pieces that had never been played, pieces that weren't even quite finished. Douglas used to say when I first tried to record his music, oh, it's OK, Margaret's done it. If, if anybody wants to hear it, you know, Margaret's done it. Dan first got to know Lilburn in 1984, about four years into Lilburn's retirement. Dan was studying piano with Margaret Nielsen and composition with Jack Body at Victoria University. He loved what younger people were doing and he was always putting money into music projects of young people from the university. And of course, I remember we at uni, we'd have the annual composition concert, which was really great. And there was always a cash prize for the first three and um, it was always from an anonymous donor but everybody knew that it was Douglas Auburn although you weren't supposed to say it you know and then he'd often be he was there until he got a bit uh, not so mobile but he'd just be sneaking out you know when it was finishing you'd, you'd be lucky to catch him and I remember in the first year I wrote this big romantic piano piece and he came up after the concert and said Danny Danny oh You've got some nice notes in there, Danny, but just a bit too many of them, but not bad. And then he just walks off, you know, just very, there's no... And you sort of think, is that a compliment or is it, you know... I mean, he was so honest. He was a very honest person. Jack would have this end-of-year thing, and we'd all go around there to see the maestro um, in Thorndon and Ascot Terrace, and, and Douglas... W- w- was the most immaculate host. He was so incredible. Um, he would sort of, ha- he'd always have nuts and gherkins, wholesome sort of crackers, I think that's what he'd usually supply, and plenty of wine, you know, the wine flowed. So th- at that stage, it was very much the just disciple guru thing. Well, we were all a bit in awe of him. And I can't imagine that he was that comfortable with that kind of relationship. Like, you know, that he thought of himself in a, in a guru-like way. Absolutely you know. not, yeah. So when I say that, that was from our point of view, yeah. But he was spiky. You know, we were schooled by Jack, really, and, and, and Douglas etiquette. <laughs> in November that year, Lilburn turned 70, and Dan Poynton and fellow second-year composition students John Pasathis and Helen Bowater ignored Jack's warnings and decided they'd take Lilburn a birthday cake. None of us were expert cake makers, and so we, I'd, we'd get all this icing. It was like a carrot cake with really rich, you know, that cream cheese, lemon icing. And then I got, like, chocolate fish standing up like totems. And then all in between this were, were these candles, like 70 candles. And we went to town, and we, we arrived at that doorstep with this cake. And he said, well, you better come in, you know. And so we were in there. We got the whole treatment. The gherkins came out, and he sort of he took the cake and he put it in the um, in the kitchen. And um, 
And so we snuck in, started lighting the candles, and this thing, the whole cake sort of went on fire. There was so much on it. And because uh, and all these candles, it was like a firestorm. And then all the, the icing all melted and the, all the wax went into this thing. And then we thought we've got to take it in. It was on fire. And, um, and <laughs> Did he was, have a fire alarm? <laughs> no, no, no. And of course, he took it very calmly, but said, perhaps you better take that back to the kitchen. So we had to put it in the, in the sink. He couldn't stop them coming, you know. This is Jenny McLeod again. He wasn't so rude that he wouldn't invite you in if you came and knocked at his door. And anyway, that way he could keep in touch with the younger composers. And he was interested in their work. Lilburn's neighbourhood of Thorndon had changed since he'd moved in. By the 1980s, he was horrified to learn that he now lived in Ascot Street, not Ascot Terrace. It is not even a lane, and God forbid it should ever become a way he wrote to the Wellington City Council. The much bigger change, though, was the motorway that cut through Thorndon and through the old Bolton Street Cemetery. Lilburn's friend Rita Angus sketched and painted many of the demolished gravesites in her last years before the council shifted the human remains. Lilburn liked his neighbourhood. He had a handful of friends living within stone's throw, he had Ma Lu's fruit and veggie shop across Tinakori Road, and the bottle shop was just down the end of his street. And he used to get his wine from there, cartons of wine. <laughs> and uh, he, he really enjoyed, I think, the taste of it. Lilburn didn't think he was an alcoholic, despite being aware that the amount he was drinking was a health risk. But some of the people who he had fallouts with did think the booze was a factor in Lilburn's irrational outbursts. I don't think he ever drank in the daytime, so obviously... But there were rules. Yeah, no, he was really just... But at night time, he was a serious drinker. By the mid-90s, Dan Poynton had left the country and come back, flatting just a few hundred metres away from Lilburn at historic residence The Moorings. And I was uh, not knowing what to do. In fact, I was driving taxis. As you do when you've got a music degree. <laughs> yeah. So I, so I thought I'll, I'll teach piano, and I put a sign up in the dairy, and then this beautiful letter in, in his beautiful, precise but scrawly script. Dan got a letter in his mailbox from Douglas. And here it goes. Dear Daniel, I note your card in the window of the park grocery and offer a thought. I, of course, could not volunteer for piano lessons. As you may be aware, uh, retractions of tendons in both my hands now inhibit any former use of my loved old August Furster. And I'd wish for it better company than I now can give. Might you consider an occasional convenient visit of an hour or whatever to warm the old instrument? Any such help must be, of course, at your professional rate. Douglas Lilburn. And then it got hilarious, so I, I took him up on the sofa, and he, he said, I'll just leave you to it. And then after about 10 minutes, I'm playing away, and this wine just slides onto the piano. <laughs> A half an hour later, I'd finished that one and still playing it. And the next one would come, you know. And just saying nothing, and it was just wonderful. And I just got lost and I played, I don't know, two or three hours. 
A few hours playing on Lilburn's piano, a seemingly endless conveyor belt of wine arriving unprompted on the side of the piano. And then he comes and knocks on the door. He says, excuse me, Daniel, just wondering, how long might you be here? And just thinking of your, your professional rate. <laughs> it's just so great. And I said, oh, no, of course, I'm not going to take any money. No, 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 of course not. So he came in with a jar of his homemade green tomato chutney. Over those last years of Douglas's life, Dan ate quite a lot of homemade green tomato chutney. So he made me take that chutney, and that was in the moorings. You should have seen that chutney in the moorings with 12 flatmates. They just went for that jar. Often before I played, we'd sit there in that room and I'd often have lunch or snacks with him, looking out onto that garden. He'd often talk about that garden. What did he call it? Had a name for the jungle. The jungle, yeah, the jungle. That's right. The last year of his life, he didn't come down to the library much at all. When Lilburn wrote his will, he asked librarian Jill Palmer, along with another librarian, Margaret Calder, and pianist Margaret Nielsen, to be his executors. And they all looked out for him in those last years. And I'd go up to the house to see him and um, update him on the trust and the music archive, and he liked that. And he couldn't see very well, and so he got me to sort through his bills. But Douglas's health was failing. He even sent Jill to scout out rest homes for him, but changed his mind. He wanted to be in his home. He had a few stays in hospital between 2000 and 2001. He didn't want to be in hospital, you know, and he could be quite adamant about that. No fewer than three people told me a story about Douglas's bet. It was during one of those hospital stays that Jack Boddy and his partner decided to get rid of it. I think it was his idea to go and get the bed. Margaret Nielsen. He said, look at the state of those blankets and look at the state of this and that. And So they, between them, they kind of did the deed. Mm. And uh, Douglas was furious, just furious. And then he, his eyes bored into me. And uh, so um, once again, uh, well, it didn't last all that long. Lilburn didn't want to take painkillers for his various ailments anymore, preferring the old Scottish remedy, hot toddies. By May 2001, his condition was critical and he was back in hospital. Margaret visited on that last day. And so Douglas and I had a a rather fun final chat, as it were, while he was in hospital and did a lot of laughing too and remembered incidents over the years which we'd shared and... uh, So I always felt very relieved that I felt I'd had a chance to uh, kind of restore a warm relationship uh, that that we had. But on the 5th of June, he decided that he was going home, no matter what. Jill Palmer. And the hospital didn't want him to go home. Nobody wanted him to go home because he, he was just unable to cope. And, of course, the house wasn't equipped to handle a a very elderly and sick person. But they let him home. They let him go home. Jill Palmer and Lilburn's old friend, pianist Gwyneth Brown, took turns being next to him that night, making Douglas food, changing the dressings on his scraped knee and talking with him. And then he had the best 
glass of wine that he ever had. The next morning, Douglas's neighbour John Cook arrived to check on Lilburn and give Jill a break. It was around 10 o'clock and I was looking at his hand and all of a sudden I saw it flutter, just flutter. I've never seen anything like it. And John looked at him and said, I think he's gone. And he had. He had. Hmm. And then I thought, this is an end of an era. And it was sad. It was sad, but it's what Douglas wanted. And he was happy to be at home. And it it couldn't have gone on any longer. And it was time for him to go. Did you see him before he died? No, but I did, at one stage, I sent him a note saying all is forgiven. (laughs) Jenny McLeod. Did he reply to that? I don't think he did. Uh, But then he died and he was good and dead. I was in my little bed at Pukura Bay, sitting up in bed, looking out at the sea. And I heard Douglas's voice. And he just spoke my name, said, Jenny. And that was it. And it was just like, that was his forgiving me. That's how I feel about that. Mm. Yeah. Well, since I have no idea what happens when you die, and I'm rather looking forward to finding out, um, that uh, uh, I I have a feeling we're going to connect again somewhere. We'll be different people or whatever. We might be creatures, we might be, who knows, spirits. Margaret Nielsen told me that the piece Douglas wrote for her in 1962, the Sonatina No. 2, had birdsong in it. But it wasn't until the tui began to flourish around Wellington that she realised that was the bird. And I've so often heard that bird outside with the repeated notes, and which was very, very much a feature of quite a lot of his music. And, uh, and when I heard this first bird out then, I thought, my God, Lilburn! <laughs> so every time I hear it, uh, uh, the sound from the birds there, I just have another thing of Douglas. So that's always nice, just to, just an automatic reaction to it, you know. Douglas Lilburn had planned a small funeral, 20 to 30 of his closest friends and family, and he'd chosen the soundtrack. He was cremated, and his ashes were buried in the family plot in Whanganui. Musical tributes followed. One of them, at a city church, was so packed people were standing outside the doors straining to hear Lilburn's music. Now, he left his music materials, his papers, paintings and recordings to the Turnbull, and also his piano. Jill Palmer and her colleagues spent days clearing out the house, finding all sorts of treasures. Stuffed between the laundry wall and the dryer was an oil portrait of Douglas, dressed in a green velvet jacket and grey turtleneck by Leo Bensman. And there were many photos, programmes, manuscripts, his Otago diary. Then in his bedroom, the room where he had passed away, we found 
a trunk and it was full of letters, all tied up in bundles, neatly tied up. Yes. There's a bundle, or two or three, I don't remember how many, from Rita Angus. There were letters from his parents, from Alan Curnow, Frederick and Evelyn Page, and, and many others. He hadn't burnt any of them. You could just tell it was a complete collection. He looked after the things that he had, but he didn't want them to see the light of day while he was alive, I think. Yeah. Yes. Lilburn had left notes on things, whether they should be restricted or whether anyone else's estate would need to approve if a researcher wanted to view the letters. That Otago diary that biographer Philip Norman read and transcribed parts of, for example, Lilburn noted that it was not for publication. Dan Poynton found a special piece in the archives here, one of the very few bits of manuscript Douglas scribbled in his retirement, this one dating from 1997. It's just a few staves, covered in comments. And it was like a love song to his piano, but he gets into all this talk and, you know, he was probably having some wine, wondering about life and how it could go, how it might have turned out or how it didn't or whatever. And you got the feeling that he was actually still thinking about writing music, even though it might have been a passing whim. So, yeah, it says, A strange notion of salute to my loved old August Furster upright piano. Now that I've cleared decks of a mass of paperwork, I must listen, simply listen. It may be a totally mad exercise, but often I lift the lid and play. And then he just, he just writes, he just lifts the lid and he plays this. ravished by the quality of sound and disturbed, perhaps a way of liberating a frosted imagination. This may be a foolhardy exercise and will not breathe a word to anyone about it. Magpie House was cleared out, redecorated, rewired so it wouldn't burn down, and there was a heritage covenant placed on it. A plaque was commissioned so that people would know it was where Lilburn had lived. Tenants moved in while decisions were made as to what to do with it. A group from the music community, led by Jack Body, felt that it should become a composer's residence. But Lilburn had been conflicted about what he wanted to happen to the house after he died. He'd thought about leaving it to the Turnbull for researchers or to Victoria University to house visiting scholars, though in the end he did neither, telling Margaret Nielsen... Well, I think I've given New Zealand composers enough now. In the end, Lilburn's will was clear. The residue of his estate, including his house at 22 Ascot Street, was to be sold and the proceeds, along with his royalties and copyrights, were to go to the Lilburn Trust. So the Magpie House was put on the market. The group that wanted the house formed the Lilburn Residence Trust and scrambled to get the money. It was hair-raising through that time. 
hair-raising in terms oh. of people's heckles getting up. Yes, 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 yes. Other higher offers came in, but were retracted when they realised the house couldn't be altered under the Historic Places Trust covenant. In 2005, the Lilburn Residence Trust, the music community group, bought the house, despite Lilburn making it difficult for them. I think Douglas would have been surprised, but I think he would be tremendously gratified at it. So the house still stands as a place where wonderful music is composed and performed and all that sort of thing. Mate atu he tete kura, aramai he tete kura. It's a fakatoki, meaning roughly, when one plant frond dies, another rises to take its place. Well, I moved into the house and uh, it was empty. It had virtually nothing in it. This is Dame Gillian Karawe Whitehead. She was a student of Lilburn's very briefly in the early 70s. She's now one of New Zealand's most well-known and celebrated classical composers, and in 2005 became the first composer-in-residence at Lilburn's old house. The first nights I slept there, I sort of woke up itching and found myself covered in flea bites because all the neighbourhood cats had been coming in for the weeks while the place was empty. So the first thing I had to do was get flea bombs and really bombed the place more than once. The music community rallied around to furnish the house again, and Gillian, who is Ngaiterangi, organised a kaumatua, Bishop Muru Walters, to come in and bless the house. You know, it had been lived in for a long time by different people, and now it was moving off into a new direction where composers would come and work, and Douglas was... Still in the air, but it it felt very good after I'd done that. Is that the whole direction of the energy had changed? Do you feel like a house carries the resonance of the people who have lived there before? Yes, I do actually. Or well, a lot of houses you go into, you you feel uneasy. Other houses. You feel welcome, and I'm sure it's to do with the whole process of the, the house being built and the people who've lived in it and so on. I, I, I do think that carries. There was a celebration along with the blessing of the house. Richard and Barbara Collins, who commissioned the house back in 1951, were there along with the music community. After that, Gillian and friends made an attempt to tackle the weeds in Douglas's overgrown jungle. But I wasn't there to be a gardener, and I'm not exactly the world's greatest gardener anyway. So in the end, a gardener was hired. Gillian reinstalled Friday night drinks at the Magpie House. When I moved into the place, I wanted it to be shared with people, because I was living there, but it was Douglas's house, and, and so I... I, I sort of set in motion something that whenever I was there, anyone who wanted to drop round on a Friday night was welcome. I think Douglas would have liked the music that Gillian composed in that year in the house. One of the pieces was this one, Puhake Kitirangi, which translates as Spouting to the Skies, inspired by a news report about Japan breaking the moratorium on whaling. 
Some of the instruments that Taonga Pūro master Richard Nunns plays on this recording are made from whale and albatross bones. Douglas Lilburn would never get to see the Taonga Pūro revival where it is today, but he saw its beginnings. In around 1994, someone took Douglas a copy of Tuku Te Fe, the now iconic album that heralded the revival of Taonga Pūro, traditional Māori instruments. He heard the music and he was in floods of tears and said, that's the music I've been longing to hear. Douglas's music, in, in a way, there are certain things about it that seem to capture something of the essence of this place. And so, of course, does the music of Tongapuro. And, and he would have recognised, oh, maybe that it was something that in his mind's ear he was trying to find. Yeah. Since Gillian's year at the Magpie House, there's been 16 further residents. Yeah, right from when I was little, I was kind of aware that of this incredible figure in our New Zealand music history. And now it's amazing, really amazing to be living uh, in his house that he lived in for so long. This is composer Selena Fisher, who's living at the house at the time of this podcast. But since then, so many other composers have also come here and created work here. So that's really inspiring as well to think about. Pieces in all styles of music have been dreamed up here. There's been electroacoustic work, jazz, string quartets, orchestral symphonies and vocal music. Yeah, so to be kind of part of that legacy in a way is, is yeah, a massive honour and yeah, super inspiring. It's been yeah, absolutely amazing to, to have this house, this space to compose and also this time to just focus on my work um, and not have to worry too much about surviving, you know, um, paying rent and all that kind of stuff, just to be able to have that time uh, to focus, yeah. When you look out that window, what is it that catches your eye or, or inspires you when, when you're stuck on a piece? <laughs> um, it's changed a little bit, actually, because um, this cherry tree has just been trimmed quite a lot, but until... Quite recently it was, uh, it was huge and it was very popular with birds, so we'd get um, rosellas and tui and uh, kereru sometimes, kaka quite a lot. We have kaka on the roof and they make quite a lot of noise. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing actually to be out here and be surrounded by that much wildlife all the time. Selena started a piece for piano and cello when she was leaving New York after two years of study and finished it in this house. It's called mononoaware. It's a Japanese phrase that celebrates impermanence, change and transience. In Japan, the whole nation and throngs of tourists turn up to the Cherry Blossom Festival, knowing that the pastel pink blooms will only be there for a few days. This is the appreciation of mononoaware. Lilburn loved those cherry trees outside his music room. They'd been transplanted here from Victoria University as six-foot saplings. Lilburn wrote of them, They cover the sky and cover the lawn as they drop, and their vibratory colour suffuses the room where I am. I give thanks. 
with wonder. This podcast series was produced and presented for Sound Centre for New Zealand Music, Toitiara Puru, by me, Kirsten Johnstone. Our researcher was Jane Tolleton. Our sound engineer was Phil Brownley. Our script advisor was Melody Thomas of Popsock Media. We had production assistance from Roger Smith, Jonathan Engel, Carlo Margatic, Alpina Chauvin, Amy Somerville, and Nina Lesperance. Our executive producers were Diana Marsh, Leone Venter, and Eva Radich. Thanks to the following for supplying audio and music for this episode. RNZ Concert, Nataonga Sound and Vision, Rattle Records, Attle Records, The Lilburn Trust, Ode Records, APO, The Kugels, Richard Nuns and the New Zealand String Quartet, Dan Poynton, Matthew Barley and Stephen DePledge, Gillian Whitehead, Selena Fisher, Margaret Nielsen, Tom McGrath, Michael Houston, Deirdre Irons, Martin Risley and Donald Morris, and Justin DeHart. Thanks to the following for their support in making this podcast series possible. Our guests, who so generously shared their knowledge, time and personal stories. And my special thanks to Philip Norman, who wrote an incredible book on Lilburn. I've spent so many hours reading it, the spine has come loose from the cover. And to Creative New Zealand for providing the funding to make this podcast series possible. And thank you for listening. For more about this podcast and other Sounds podcasts and information about the music of Aotearoa New Zealand, go to the Sounds podcast website, sounds.org.nz. That's S-O-U-N-Z. Nō reira tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā tātou katoa. Toitearapuru Sounds. <laughs>